Well, if you don't know me, my name is John Fox, and I am a pastor here at the church. And today, we're going to be talking about Easter. Big surprise. So if you, uh, if you kind of wandered in here, and you just aren't aware of what day it is, then if you haven't figured it out already, it's Easter, Easter Sunday. It is uh, an important day for our church. It's an important day for every church. Our church and churches all over the world celebrate today more than any other day uh, because it is the day that Jesus rose from the dead or that we remember that Jesus rose from the dead. And it's a powerful day. It is a powerful day. It's a powerful thing that we remember that Jesus came, God of God, fully God, stepped into human history, took on flesh, became a man, lived an obscure life as a Jewish carpenter in a more obscure part of the Roman Empire, suffered for sinners, died, and rose from the grave and completely changed the world. Even the most secular people these days rightly admit that Jesus is one of the top three most influential men in history, have completely changed the world. And so the resurrection is powerful. Easter is powerful. But is it powerful for our own lives? Uh, I grew up in church. I was around church all the time. And so the components of Christianity really, they, um, they, they make sense to me. You know, like I learned them as early as I could learn anything. And so Easter especially is something that even for me, as I was thinking about this upcoming Sunday and preparing to preach, that I thought, what is actually happening here? You know, it's so easy to get caught up in cultural, cultural points about holidays, and Easter is certainly one of them. And so I just want to point out a, a couple things for us that uh, Easter kind of becomes for us. Is, is it about family? Because we have a lot of family here, don't we? Or relaxation. Is it a time where you just maybe get an extra day off a week? Or is it about the candy that I hear crinkling out there in the audience? We're conditioned in some sense to think about Easter in a commercial sort of fashion, and we know that. We know that about Easter. And I actually know it about myself. Yesterday, as I was driving, I was leaving the house, kind of passing the neighborhood, and there's a bend in the neighborhood with a park on the right. And as I was leaving, my eye caught a little pink object next to a rock. And, uh, and I kind of slowed down instinctively, and then I thought, an Easter egg. And then I looked, and there was a green one and an orange one, and they were all over the place in an open field. And my gut reaction was to go get the eggs, because that's what I grew up doing. And so that was my first thought, was I have to get them. And the second thought, closely behind it, was, is anyone around? And so I looked, and no one was around. There's, at this particular park, it was kind of far back, and so there was nobody around the eggs. And then I could see way off in the distance some people walking down on the street. I had arrived at just the right time where the eggs were dropped off and no one was coming to get them and it was only me. And all this happened in, I don't know, maybe three seconds. 
But those sorts of things can happen quick in your mind. So, of course, I pulled over and got out. And I'm joking, I didn't, I didn't do it. I did think about it, though. I did think about it. Um, and I tell you that just because I recognize it for myself, that we are conditioned in some sense for holidays and certainly for Easter. What is it about? What is Easter really about? And so today we're just going to look at it briefly under three things. The cross, the tomb, and the king. That's what Easter is about. The cross, the tomb, and the king. First, let's look at the story of the cross. As we saw last week with Pastor Brent preaching, Jesus was on trial before Pilate, and the following events unfolded. should be on the screen for you, John 19. Now, it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king. And they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. And so he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth. The king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather, This man said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. And then down in verse 28, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Here's the story of Jesus' crucifixion and death. It's probably not new news to you. At the same time, it is the day of the Passover festival in the Jewish world. And so Jesus quickly is portrayed for us as John has already said from the mouth of John the Baptist at the beginning of the gospel, the blameless lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And as Pastor Brent said last week, the verdict that we saw from even Pilate is that he was guiltless. He was sinless. He had done nothing wrong. Pilate could find no guilt in him. And we often make the, the cross out to be something that's pretty. Jewelry, hanging up on our walls. But it's actually a gruesome thing. And this is something that we also know. Six hours of public ridicule after being beaten already in public. Naked, beaten, nails through his hands and his feet, thorn of crowns, crashed on his head, and abandoned by his closest friends in his greatest hour of need. The cross is not pretty. It's not pretty. And for most of the world's history, it has not been popular. 
and enjoyable. So we find ourselves in a little bit of a different place in history. But we see that the Son does this. Why? Why would Jesus do this? Why would he suffer like this? The short answer that we see is to do his Father's will. Jesus does this to do his Father's will. He does it to come and to save sinners like you and me. And what does he say on the cross? We read it. What does he say? He says, it is finished. What's finished? That's his work, his great work of salvation, that it's done. The fancy theological term for this is atonement. Another way to say it is payment, that Jesus on the cross pays for our sin. There's a debt owed to God because of our sin, because of my sin, because of your sin, that can only be paid in blood. No other currency will work, only blood. And Jesus steps in and pays it for his people. And as I say that, and even as I thought about it this past week, the truth of that kind of bounces off my heart. It's hard to penetrate. It's hard to actually move and change. And that's what we often have with Easter. It's these truths that come in, and we may be excited about them for a day today. We may be excited this whole week, but what about afterward? What we need is for this truth to actually penetrate our heart. And so I'd like to try to do it this way with you. I'm going to give you some hypotheticals this morning. What if we could separate the cross and the tomb? What if we could do that? We realistically can't, but think about this for a second. What if we could separate the cross and the tomb? The empty tomb without the cross, is meaningless. And here's what I mean. If we have the empty tomb, another way to say if we have the resurrection that we celebrate today, but Jesus didn't die on the cross to save people from their sin and ensuing judgment, then the gospel would be meaningless. What's the point? You say it this way, what does the resurrection matter if Jesus never did anything for me personally? What does the resurrection matter if Jesus didn't actually do anything for me? Like he didn't save me from my sins or the penalty of my sins. Without the cross, the empty tomb is meaningless. Think about it this way. At least, at least, that would mean that the resurrection, the empty tomb, is completely unrelated to us, right? If Jesus came and sin was not involved, the cross was not involved, forgiveness was not involved, then what would be happening is Jesus would be coming, doing his own thing, living, dying, rising, and that's good for him. So at least it's unrelated to us. But at most, it turns Jesus into some sort of genie where he just fixes our problems, why do I bring this up to you? I bring it up because, yes, we can't realistically separate the cross and the tomb, but we do it practically, don't we? We do it practically. Anytime that we minimize admitting our own sin and the depth of it, we are really saying that we believe we haven't done anything that wrong. Put it another way for you. Think about this from all different angles. When we aren't honest with God, 
and we don't confess our sin, what we're really saying is Jesus made a mistake. It wasn't worth Jesus actually dying for my sin. There could have been another way. And so we often minimize or rationalize sin. And this happens all the time. If you have driven on 1488, this happens to you. 1488 is a testing ground every time. Every day I get up to go drive that thing. I think, God, please help me. Please, please help me. I'm going to get impatient. I'm going to wish that someone's car just blows up right in front of me, gets out of the way. I can often be impatient. And what's happening when I do that? Well, it's sin. That sin is just as worthy of Christ dying for as murder. If we have the cross, if we have the empty tomb without the cross, it's meaningless. There's no really any point to Jesus coming. Think about it this way for you. From time to time, there's conflict in the Fox household. It may surprise you. And as that happens, sin is often involved. And my sin certainly is, is in view often. And I can be impatient. I can be overbearing. I can be harsh and unreasonable. And when that happens, when I act that way, I know that I'm going to have to make it right with Andrea and the boys. I know I am. And sometimes I just come clean quickly, fully admit it, and say, you know what, I was wrong, I was impatient, shouldn't have yelled, shouldn't have thrown something out the window. I'm joking, I don't really do that. But uh, I, that sort of thing still happens, though. And sometimes I deal with it quickly, and other times I don't. Often what happens is my sin kind of begets more sin, and so then, then what happens? Then the Cold War ensues, and there's... There's a battle of who will break first in the house. Who's it going to be? Is it going to be me that says, I'm sorry first, I was wrong? Or is it going to be the wife? Or is it going to be the kids? And then we start to do this rationalizing behavior. I know I do, where I get in that situation and then I think, well, actually, I was only 30% wrong. They're really 70% wrong, therefore... They must talk first. Like, they got to talk first. They have to, they have to confess their sin before I'm willing to do it. And what's happening in that? What's happening is I minimize my sin, my impatience, my anger, whatever it is, and we all do this. We all do it. To say it another way, when we minimize our sin, we're really saying that Jesus made a mistake. We're practically saying that my sin, great or large, in my mind, was not worth Jesus dying for on the cross. Do you see how offensive that is to God? Do you see how offensive that is to Jesus? Eventually what happens, if we have, again hypothetically, if we have the empty tomb, but we have no cross, is we don't have a gospel. We cheapen grace. We cheapen God's grace. If Jesus rose from the dead but didn't actually pay for our sin, then it was meaningless. The gospel must include the cross. It has to. Another way to say it, the gospel must include my confession of sin to be saved. If it doesn't, there's no point in even having the resurrection. But what do we see? 
in places like Romans 5.8, that God demonstrated his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not when we were clean. Second point, we talked about the cross, now let's talk about the tomb. Is it the whole gospel just to have the cross? No, it's not. You see, we can do the same thing that we did with the cross with the tomb. If we have the cross without the empty tomb, then it's powerless. So let's read the account of the tomb in Luke 24. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to the rest. Here is the story of the resurrection. Three days after Jesus died on the cross, his disciples went to the tomb and found it empty. Almost empty anyway. There's a couple of angels there. And what do they say? But why are you seeking the living among the dead? Like, Jesus doesn't live here. He's risen. It's a moment that caused instant wonder for these women, his disciples, and at the same time, disbelief. Is this true? Someone could rise from the dead? It's too wonderful. It can't be true. And then after this, Jesus appears to his other disciples, and even 500 disciples at one point, where people see him risen from the dead. And this is the resurrection. God is powerful to save. God not only makes promises, but he has the power to keep them. He has the power to keep them. Belief in the resurrection is something we are to take in faith, as Jesus told Thomas. Thomas saw him, but what did Jesus say? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. It's better for you, which puts all of us in this room in a better state than even Thomas. Because we haven't seen him yet. Christians believe this, that Jesus was raised from the dead. And because he was raised, they will be raised. You see, the resurrection is not just about Jesus rising from the dead, but because he has risen, all things will be made new. People who believe in him will be with him forever, will have new bodies one day. Heaven and earth will be joined back together. There will be no sin, sadness, or death. The resurrection is what purchases all this. It makes it possible. But what if we say, so here's another hypothetical for you. What if we say that we have the cross, Jesus dying for sinners, the atonement, the payment for sin, but we have no empty tomb. Again, it's not possible, especially from a theological standpoint, but if that were the case, then what would we have? The cross without the empty tomb would be powerless. Paul bring, brings this up in 1 Corinthians 15 as he talks to 
the Corinthian church. And his point is to say that if we who believe in Christ have no resurrection, it's pointless. It's powerless. There's, there's, there's no point in our living for Jesus. There's no point in trying to follow God. Why? Because none of it would be true. There would be no power whatsoever. The cross without resurrection power leads to hollow sentimentality. It may sound comforting that Jesus loves us, but it means nothing. It, it, it's bogus. And think about this. I hear this a lot. When we see people, you know, tragedies and things happen in the news, and what happens? People used to say, well, we're praying for you, or prayers be with you. What, you know, God's in view somehow. But often today, uh, in a secular mindset, you can't do that, and so what's substituted for it? Well, I'll, I'm sending you good vibes, right? Sending you good vibes. What is going on with good vibes, Okay. There's, there's something a little bit legitimate to it, I think, in that it's a way of expressing that you love someone, right? You, you care for them. You're with them in the pain, in the hurt. But what does it actually do? Can you do anything with good vibes? And that's the way it's often talked about. I'm sending good vibes out for you. Thank you. What is it doing? It actually has no power. There's no power involved whatsoever. You see, the resurrection gives us power. What we need is someone outside of ourselves who has the power to actually change our circumstances. That's what's going on in the resurrection. If we only have the cross and no empty tomb, then we don't have a God who can meet our deepest needs. Think about this. We only have a God who knows our deepest needs and can't do anything about it. It's no good. It's powerless. But if we have a God of resurrection power, then there is hope. There is hope that God raised Jesus and one day he will raise us. Let's get a little more specific. If the resurrection is true, then God can change us. If the resurrection is true, then God can change us. You see, we often think about the resurrection in terms of that future day. But resurrection power means that you will be changed one day and now. The resurrection means that today there is power for you to change. Think about the behaviors in your life that threaten to ruin you. Lust, anger, desire for power over all things. Maybe it's hopelessness, it's pride, gluttony, or the one we don't talk about a whole lot, covetousness. I just want stuff. Think about those things and how they threaten to ruin your life. In the gospel, with the resurrection, what we see is power that will change you, not just in the future, but today. The empty tomb means that there's power and therefore hope that God would change us more into the image of Christ today. But when we act in such a way that we really disbelieve, disbelieve the resurrection, what we're saying is that 
we don't believe in the empty tomb, and we really don't believe in God's power. So think about it practically this way for you. If you, as a believer, are in the midst of a habitual sin, and you say, I can't get out of it, it's too much for me. What's actually going on in your heart is to say that God's not powerful enough. The resurrection was not effective. And so when we see this kind of thing, what we have to realize is that it's true. That if we have the cross and we have no empty tomb, there is no power in the Christian life. It is powerless. The gospel must include the empty tomb. If it doesn't, then all of Jesus' work on the cross is just empty sentimentality. It does us no real good. We need the cross and we need the empty tomb. But is that all? I think a lot of people probably stop there and say yes, but I think we can push it a little bit further. Let's look at the third thing this morning. We saw the cross, the tomb, and now the king. Third, we see the risen Lord himself. And we'll see this in Philippians 2, 5 through 10. It's one place where both of these concepts come together. It happens all over the New Testament, but here's one place to see it. Have this mind among yourselves, Paul tells the Philippians, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. And that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's just one place in the New Testament to see this dynamic at work. But here's what's happening. When we read, as Paul says, that he was born in the likeness of men, he humbled himself, he emptied himself by becoming a man to the point of death, even death on the cross. What is he talking about? That's the cross. And then we see in verse 9, therefore God has, what? Highly exalted him. That's the empty tomb. And bestowed on him the name that is above every name. And again, we can stop here and we can say, well, that's it. That's the gospel for us. That Jesus died on the cross for me. That he rose for me. And I believe that. He did it for me to give me a good life and bless me with all my plans. So I can, that's, we quickly end up getting in the wrong train of thought here. You see, there's a way of even looking at the gospel in a man-centered way where we see it's all about us. It's all about me. Jesus had to save me. And this is not yet quite the gospel. The good news is not mainly about us. It's about Jesus. I love how Sally Lloyd-Jones puts it in her children's book, the Jesus Storybook Bible. At the beginning of it, she says it this way. Now, some people think the Bible is a book of rules telling you what you should and shouldn't do. The Bible certainly does have some rules in it. They show you how life works best, but the Bible isn't mainly about you and what you should be doing. It's about God 
and what he has done. The Bible, Easter, is mainly about Jesus and not us. And because it's about Jesus, it's good for us. Notice that Paul says that Jesus is exalted by the Father. Why? So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and tongue confess that he's Lord. When we make much of Jesus, we glorify God. The good news is that Jesus is king over all things and everyone will bow before him. Think about the implications of this. Put it in real time for you. Donald Trump will bow before King Jesus. Elon Musk will bow before King Jesus. Oprah Winfrey will bow before King Jesus. Mark Zuckerberg, the most wealthy person you can imagine, your co-workers, your friends, your family, your neighbors, the devil, you and I will all one day bow before this king. He is the king. The king is what makes the good news good news. You see, if we have the cross, which is the love of God on display for sinners, and we have the empty tomb, which is God's power over all things, if we have the cross and we have the empty tomb, then we have the good news of King Jesus. He's the one you're made for. He's the one who made you. He's the one that you should worship and turn to and give your life for. And this is, this is something that we have that we see that it's worth celebrating. Because Jesus is at the center of Easter, we can celebrate. But more than that, not only celebrate, what does Paul say? He says that we have something to emulate. He tells them, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ, Jesus. Christians, don't, they don't use their force to win arguments. Why? Because Jesus didn't. Jesus didn't use force to win arguments. Rather, Christians, likewise, don't use force. What do they do? They, they win people over by their lives. They say that Jesus is worth this much. They win people over by their worship. How much is Jesus worth? How important is he? That's how you change the world. We humbly serve other people because he humbly served us and showed us he is loving and powerful. Just about nine hours ago, a bomb went off in Sri Lanka the first of eight so far recorded. And they were all targeting Christians on Easter Sunday. Over 200 Christians this morning died. At least 400 more, last report, injured. And what they need is not empty sentimentality. What they need is a gospel with a cross and an empty tomb that has a king. A king who rules all things. And the same thing that the people who killed them need is a cross and an empty tomb that has the power to change them and give them life so that they are friends 
of the king. There's an illustration I like to close with. Uh, it's kind of used in church circles, and it's a really short way to give the gospel. It's the death row example. You may have heard of it before. So let's say you're on death row. You're about to die. The next day, Jesus comes to you in the prison, and he says, I'll take your place. I'll take your seat on death row. You go free. And you say, yes, I accept it. I agree. I believe. And the exchange is made. And that's part of the gospel. But I don't think that's quite, quite there with what we've seen. It would be better to have this kind of scenario. And this is more like where we actually are. You're on death row. You know you deserve it. Everyone else agrees you deserve it, which would take a miracle at this point in the world. But everyone agrees you should die because of the heinous crimes you've committed against this king and all of his subjects. And the king comes to you in prison, and he gives you three pieces of paper. The first is a release from death row, exchanging his place for yours. The second removes you from the prison. And the third is a check for $1 trillion. It'll be the first trillionaire in history. And as that happens, you're overwhelmed by it, and you accept it. And there's one catch. The only way that any of that matters and can actually happen is if King Jesus were to rise from the dead. Otherwise, you would still be in prison. You would still be destitute, and you would still be sitting on death row. This is what the gospel does for us. This is what Easter is about. When Jesus comes, he comes humbly on the cross, taking on the weight of sinners. And as he rises from the grave in power, he preaches to us resurrection life in him, where everything is about him. And what happens, most importantly, is that you who were a criminal become his friend, a subject, and even more than a friend, as we see in the New Testament, a brother or a sister. He adopts you into his family, and you become a co-heir with him of all that he has. This is the gospel for us. This is what Easter is about. If you haven't seen this or believed it before, then I call to you, see Jesus in the cross, dying for sinners. See Jesus in the resurrection, risen with power. See Jesus as the king, authority over all things. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for Easter. Thank you for coming, living, dying, and rising for us. God, we ask that it would not be something that doesn't penetrate our heart. God, but that changes us from the inside out. Thank you for laying your life down for us. Thank you for giving us power to know and to love you and hope for life in the future with you. Father, thank you for our brothers and sisters. 
who died this Sunday morning to show how worthy Jesus is of all of our affection, even our very lives. God, would you give us such a heart? Would you give us such a mind? We ask these things in your son's name.